semester, you know, we're working our way through the Apostles' Creed. And uh, tonight we were coming to, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So we're thinking about the risen Jesus, um, why the resurrection matters. And what I want to do is focus less in like an apologetic kind of way on let's talk about the resurrection. We could do that. I'd love to grab coffee and, and do that. But tonight I want to focus a little bit more on what the risen Jesus is like. And to do that, we're going to look at John chapter 20, starting at verse uh, 11. John 20, starting at verse 11, so your hand out if you want to follow along. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head uh, and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let me pray for us, and I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this passage tonight. Let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you are risen, and that you are risen indeed. Uh, Lord, that is our hope, that is our faith, um, that is what we are staking everything on, um, that our sins are forgiven because you are risen, that we have a a standing and uh, and an inheritance with God because you were risen. That the things that we fear the most and the pain that we have felt the most is not in vain and we get to grieve as those with hope because you are risen. Uh, Lord, I pray just for a a little bit together tonight that you would give us um, the truth of your risenness, the truth of your resurrection, the grace of it that we might see it, that we might feel it, that we might know it, that we might believe it, uh, that we might entrust ourselves afresh to you, our risen Lord. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. All right, so I don't know. So speaking of Thanksgiving traditions, my favorite it was on my mom's side. Uh, all, food on both sides. Like, I don't know if that's a Southern thing. I don't think that it's particularly unique to the South. But food was the way that on both sides of my family we knew how to celebrate and Thanksgiving on my mom's side was always amazing because we would do this really big pig picking the Wednesday night right before Thanksgiving. And a pig picking, if you never had one, is just like, think a whole roasted, beautifully smoked pig that you just pick from. 
just real, real good times. And then we do a full-blown meal on Thanksgiving, and it was my Mimi, my grandmother. She's the best cook I've ever known, and so it was always a great time. But she was also the best gardener that I ever knew. Uh, in fact, the only time, I'm like the only grandkid that got spanked by both grandparents for different reasons. But with my Mimi, it was because one day I went into her beautiful rose garden that she spent hours every day just tending to. And I just, just as a little jerk, just was like picking the roses. And she told me to stop. And I said no and kept picking. And she put me up and uh, gave me a good, took me behind the woodshed, if you will. But I love what I want to do tonight. It's pretty simple. And maybe it's going to be a little weird to you. I don't know. But I want to focus on, is it interesting, isn't it interesting that Mary Magdalene at first mistook the risen Jesus for a gardener? Why did John record that little detail for us? Uh, Here's why I think so. Listen to the way this in your handout, G.K. Chesterton says it. This is what we're leaning into tonight, that the risen Jesus is a gardener. And what that means is he tends to us in a really beautiful way. Uh, Listen to what Chesterton says. He says this, On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. And what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. In an assemblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. What I want to do is think about what does it mean that he meets us, the risen Jesus meets us in this way. And I want to talk the the way he tends to three things for us. And we're going to look at longer down this passage. You, You can have it open if you want to. But there are three encounters the risen Jesus has, first with Mary, then with his disciples locked behind the doors, and then with Thomas, which we've already looked at. And what it means for us, here's what I think it means, is that the risen Jesus, he tends to us in, in at least three ways. First, he tends to our tears with compassion. Second, he tends to our fears with his presence and his peace. And then lastly, he tends to our doubts with an invitation. All right, so let's start with first how he tends to our tears with compassion. And the simple thing that I want you to see is Mary. For a second, would you put yourself in Mary's shoes? Here she is. She's standing outside of the tomb of this man that has loved her in a way that no no man has ever loved her. This teacher that she's devoted not just her life to, but her resources to. And she's weeping. Why is she weeping? She's weeping at the death of her Lord. She's weeping that it seems like maybe someone robbed the grave. That's why she says to Jesus before she knows it's Jesus, tell me where you've taken the body. She's weeping at injustice. She's weeping that the world, this is the simplest way to say it. She's weeping that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And I think she's right. Part of what it means for us to be genuine Christians is we do weep. And we probably should weep more. Forget the Christianity that tells you there's no room for tears. 
Forget the Christianity that says you're supposed to sort of swim past, move past, walk past, run past the stuff that makes us sad, whether that's in the world or whether that's in your own story in life. Um, there's a, a guy, Nicholas Wolterstorff, Walter, who wrote a memoir about his son who died in a rock climbing accident. And he really is honing in on how as Americans, even as American Christians, we really don't have much of a value for tears. Because I do still think we want to do Christianity in a way that's worldly, that looks like strength, that looks like you don't cry. There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in Christianity. And here's what he wrote about this idea of losing his son in this tragedy. And, and wrestling with, he's a writer for the New York Times, wrestling with how is it okay for me to be publicly sad? <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, I've thought a lot about tears. Our, our culture says that we must be strong and that strength is sorrow to be seen in a tearless face. Tears are signs of weakness. But why celebrate tearlessness? Why insist on never outwarding the inward when that inward is bleeding? Does enduring while crying not require as much strength as never crying? Must we always mask our suffering? May we not sometimes allow people to see and enter it? Why is it so important to act strong in this way? After all, I'm in pain and have been grievously wounded. Am I to pretend otherwise? No, I shall not pretend. Instead, I shall look at the world through tears. And in doing so, perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Who then are the, I love what he says here, who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. And he calls such people aching visionaries, those who see the world with tears through the tears of the risen Jesus. Here's what I think a lot about. So, Three years ago, we had a student who committed suicide. Uh, his name was Nick, and that's a long story, and it's a painful story. And this happened about this time of year, three years ago. It was a really hard semester, as you can imagine, for a lot of reasons. And I'll never forget being at summer conference, which is my favorite thing that REF does. And our speaker for the week was one of my friends. His name was Sean Slate. And he just asked, how did this semester go? And kind of looking down through tears, I kind of I told him the story. I told him the story of what happened. I told him the story of how, what life has been like since. I was just telling him as best I could the story. And I was look, there is, it's a hard story to tell. So you can imagine when you're telling a hard story from your own life, you're kind of looking down, maybe your eyes are closed for some of it. And I'll never forget kind of telling him the story, being done, and looking up, and just tears. Like, he didn't say anything, and he didn't have to, because his tears said everything. And this is the way the risen Jesus meets us. He meets our tears with his own. And I love the way that he, it's just beautiful, please don't miss it. Mary doesn't know who he is, and she's asking him, where is the body? And did you catch the part where he simply says her name? Mary. And in the saying of her name, he is saying, I see you. I know you. I love you. It's me. There is something profound in being named. There's something profound that the risen Jesus 
knows us in this way. Um, we, I love the way the prophet Isaiah said it. He said that the Lord, that, that Jesus, this is true of him. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. You are continually before me. He knows your tears. He knows your story. He knows your pain. So first, how he tends to our tears. But then second, how he tends to our fears. Because if we, as we move on in the passage, Jesus tells Mary, go tell my brothers that I am risen. And it's interesting because all the brothers are locked behind closed doors because they're really, really afraid. They're really, really anxious, so anxious they can't even leave the house. And what I want to zero in on is what does he, when the risen Jesus, this is further down in the passage, but all you need to know is the risen Jesus shows up into the locked room and shows up in their presence. And what do you think these disciples who have scattered as he died, These disciples who who can't bear to leave the house because they're so afraid of what's going to happen to them. They don't know what to do. They're gripped and crippled by anxiety and fear. What does the Lord say to them? And I think it's interesting to think, what does he not say to them? He doesn't say, stop it. What are you doing? Get it together. Stop being so sad. Stop being so afraid. What's wrong with you? Instead, the risen Jesus shows up and he simply says, he says it a couple of times. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I think if the first kind of part of how he meets us in tears is what we could call hope, that hope's not as sentimentalized in our culture, I don't think, or in our Christianity. It can be, but peace is, I think. Like, what do we mean when we say peace? Like, I, immediately I go back to my youth group days and I go back to this family who, like, man, just the. If you ever grew up in that sort of over-spiritualized kind of youth group culture, it's, it's, a, it's a doozy. And I remember this family saying, we were doing this mission trip, and they're like, we prayed about it, and we just don't have a peace about it, so we're not letting our daughter go. And I'm like, even as like a 16-year-old, I was like, this seems off, right? This seems like you're judging what the Lord wants based on your feelings. As a feeler, even, that seems not right. So I don't mean this cheap kind of sentimental, over-spiritualized peace I want us to think about that the peace Jesus is giving his disciples is a costly peace. It's a peace that came through his death on the cross. It's a peace that came from what we talked about last time, Jesus facing the wrath that you, the judgment that you and I deserve, facing the hell that we deserve. It's the peace that, that flows and comes from that. It's the peace that comes from who Jesus is to us. That Jesus is the only one we've ever known who looks at you and says, I know everything about you and I love you and I want you and and I will never leave you or forsake you. That's how committed I am in my love to you. In other words, peace isn't a feeling. It's not like a warm religious sentiment. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And he rose again from the dead on the third day to face everything that we should truly be afraid of. Death and hell and judgment. Um, I think about, so I have a friend who is the most anxious, I've experienced it once, the most anxious flyer that I've ever known. Like to the point where she gets on a plane (laughs) and she immediately, (laughs) she gets on the plane the, the blood drains and she's tapping the bell for the attendant to come and bring the drinks. She's of age, obviously, and bring the drinks so she can make the flight through her anxiety. 
And there's this one flight that she talks about where she was, the flight anxiety as I understand it, maybe some of you have it, uh, flight anxiety seems to be at its worst on uh, the takeoff and the landing. And she was flying by herself and she was sitting next to this older man on the plane and he could tell like she is something, like she seems very anxious. And so he just kind of leaned over and said, hey, is everything okay? And she told him about her flight anxiety. And this is going to sound, it's not, maybe it's going to sound cringy. It's not cringy. This older, sweet, older man in a very non-creepy way just said, hey, it's going to be okay. And why don't, if you need to, why don't you just hold my hand when we take off and hold my hand when we land? And she did. And I think about what was it that helped bring her We could talk a long time about clinical anxiety and about medicine and all the goodness of that. But in this moment, what was he doing? He was saying, let my presence with you. Make it okay. Let my presence with you. Bring you to that resting place. Um... I think about when we are at our most anxious. What is it that you're fearful of? I'm going to try to say it like this. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Here's how I was thinking about it. Harry Potter. It's the scene, Prisoner of Azkaban. It's the scene where the Dementors are, are you know, just terrorizing Harry. And as it builds to the end, he's trying, you know, as a magical wizard, very gifted wizard, to do the Patronus charm, right? And he, he can't quite do it. He can't quite do it, and then he does it. And, you know, it's amazing. It's a corporal, it's a corporal uh, uh, Patronus, if you will, not an incorporal one. You know, you know what I'm talking about, my Harry Potter fans? Like, it's not some vague little spirit. It's this almost presence of this spirit animal, if you will. We can't say that exactly these days, but you know what I'm saying? And this is the sort of, <laughs> this is going to work, is this is the sort of peace that Jesus has for us. This sort of corporal presence that drives the things away that would suck all of the joy, that would suck all of the, all of the love, all of the life. Um, I love the way that Horatius Boner says it. That's an unfortunate name. He says like this. He says, faith is rest, not toil. It is the giving up all the former weary efforts to do or feel something good in order to induce God's love and pardon. Faith is the calm reception of the truth so long rejected that God is not waiting for any such inducements, but loves and pardons of his own goodwill and is showing that goodwill to any sinner who will come to him on such a footing and is showing and casting away his own poor performances or goodnesses and relying implicitly upon the free love of him who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus is coming to his anxious disciples and saying, peace be with you, for I am with you, and I will never leave you or forsake you. Lastly, how he tends to our tears, how he tends to our fears, and lastly, how he tends to our doubts. And we're going to kind of close from here. 
And we've done this. We talked about Thomas, and I don't want to do it all again because we've done it. It's on the podcast. We're going to listen to it. But the simple, the simple plot line, Thomas isn't there. When Jesus shows up, the reason Jesus shows up, Thomas isn't there. And his friends, his brothers are talking about it, and Mary's talking about it. And Thomas thinks, uh, I don't know. Mm, mm. Questions. And the bigger point we've already made is, how does Jesus show up to Thomas? It's interesting, you know, uh, Tim Keller talked about how when we have questions about Christianity, I think this is really true. We can put some of them in the intellectual problem camp. Like, how could the resurrection be true? We've never seen it. This doesn't happen. But then we can put some in the personal camp. Like, I don't want this to be true because if this is true, it has to change the way that I live. What I want you to see is that how Jesus meets us in both, which is by invitation. And it's an invitation to consider what it is that he's really like. And it's an invitation to think about, um, could it be true that the risen Jesus, maybe it seems too good to be true, but could it be true that this risen Jesus really has changed everything for us? I, I love this idea that, you know, we sing it sometimes that he is risen with healing in his wings, but he's also risen. And this is why we can trust his invitation. He is risen with scars and wounds on his hands and side. This is why you know that you can trust the risen Jesus. Is his wounds speak to your wounds and his wounds speak to my wounds. I'll close with this. One of my favorite poems is simply called God of the Scars. And it's this old World War II veteran. He's thinking about all the death, all the stuff that he's seen. And essentially, if I understand his name is Edward Shalito, if I understand his story right, it was the wounds of Jesus that drew him to Jesus in the first place. He wrote this poem. It's called God of the Scars. I'll close with this. He said it like this. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine, We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. And I love this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the grace of your resurrection. We thank you that you are risen, that you are risen indeed. We thank you that you meet us as the risen Lord in these ways. Lord, would you tend to our tears, the parts of our stories that we still are carrying, the wounds? Would you speak to our fears, the places that when we are going to bed at night, when we are even in a crowd with friends, we are too scared to speak the crippling fears and anxieties, would you speak and meet us in those places? And Lord, would you meet us in our doubts, the things that even, even some of us maybe want to be sure of, but aren't yet. And the places, Lord, where we're, we're not, we don't know what to make of you. We don't know what to think of you. Would you meet us in these places, risen Lord? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. You can stand and sing with us.